at Soul Space, 1714 Telegraph Avenue in downtown Oakland. Both events will benefit ECOVIVA, who supports the Council of Indigenous and Popular Organizations of Honduras. Both events will be bilingual and are wheelchair accessible. For more information, visit ECOVIVA.org or call 510-835-1334. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness From the ones Who walk In light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of sight This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. It's April 17th. Tax day. April is the cruelest month. Of course, when the poet said that, uh, he meant that April's spring renewal was the hardest season. You know, the time of year when loss and broken hearts and personal pain. You know, when it's a scene in intense contrast to the beatific beauty of nature coming into blossom time. <laughs> I, I think of our April this year, yes. <laughs> no one, no one seems to be able to get away from trumpery. Uh, sad, sad, sad. I have here now a word I used to use, caca, you know the word caca. I looked it up, and I found a word that describes a nation ruled by its worst citizens. Ah, yes, and it is called a cacastocracy. I love it, I love it. Words, words, just just cheer me up, cheer me up. Uh, anyway, April is poetry month, of course, and... Uh, I was going to talk about Emily Dickinson today, and I will, I will, I'll get to her, but I have 18 things in my little notebook here from, well, there's James Baldwin, there's just so many culture vultures, you know, we have to go for comfort. Uh, last week, I think I, I used Fran Lebowitz, it stays with me, her line, she says that culture cannot save us. From society? <laughs> I thought we were supposed to save society from itself. 
you know, um, aesthetics is the mother of ethics. However, that seems a little, a little hopeless at the moment. Uh, I couldn't actually, I, I couldn't leave the house today. I couldn't put down my uh, New Yorkers. Every time I get to the front door, I find myself grabbing for the current New Yorker. Uh, the April 17th issue of the New Yorker, uh, I just, I, I saw a picture of Margaret Atwood that I have to cut out and put on my wall. Truly, truly the picture of a witch. I don't know how she managed it. It's the red blouse and the the um, silver hair. It's, it's just a wonderful picture. Anyway, uh, it, the title of the article about Margaret Atwood, the profile, it's called The Prophet of Dystopia. Dystopia. An amazing, an amazing woman, Margaret Atwood. Almost as old as I am. I can't think the... The line I used to use years ago when I taught Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, you know, the one about a, a theocracy where the handmaids are women who are used like uh, livestock to produce children because the rest of society, well, most of society has become uh, sterile and future, yes. Handmaid's Tale, yes, very much contemporary again. Uh, Margaret Atwood, she said, I remember, she said, I believe, she said, that what gets written has a great deal to do with where people live. I live in Canada. There's nothing you can do about the Ice Age. Anyway, see the New Yorker's Margaret Talbot's uh, essay on abortion. Oh, that's a bottomless pit. Uh, oh, there's a play coming about Rachel Corey. It will be at the Magic Theater, folks, on April 27th through 14 May. I love that play. Alan Rickman uh, put it together, the script, Rachel Corey's Journals. Wonderful, wonderful. I've I've given away I've given away Rachel Corey's book or journals. I gotta get it back. I still have some some parts of the play, a few pages. Uh Rachel Corey is the young woman who died trying to help a Palestinian family ten years ago. Her parents came to Berkeley. We were all over at the King Middle School. We talked to them there. Uh I remember reading in her journal, reading in Rachel's journal, the, the things I remember. She said that what she loved, she just loved the way her mother took off her earrings and tucked them into the, the little compartment in her jewel box where they belonged. And, of course, Rachel was a, a very hectic young woman. I don't know if she ever had a pair of earrings, but... That's the sort of thing that stays in my mind, those little details. Anyway, uh, one thing I don't want to put off. Uh, let's see. Uh, four plays to see, people, and Baldwin's I Am Not Your Negro. And here's the one. It's in the books section of the April 17th New Yorker. And this is something that just... Hit me over the head. Uh, gosh, the things I don't know. 
It's about a woman who's become a saint. Saint Pauli is the title. It's on, in the book section. Spelled P-A-U-L-I. She's named for her Aunt Pauline. Pauli. Anyway, uh, this woman uh, became an Episcopal priest and has now become a saint. And <laughs> I, I can't believe she's so beautiful. I'm sorry to say it, but... Well, I don't like comparisons, but she is so much more beatific than Margaret Atwood. I maybe I should hang their pictures next to one another. Uh, this woman seems to have done everything possible to do uh, to help her people and to help the world. Uh, I think. Let's see. I think the reason I made a note here. I, I don't know whether this is good or bad, but the reason why she has come into prominence now, born 1910, died in 1985, right. The reason why uh, she is, well, not just being a, a saint, but this woman apparently identified as a man. And that is, of course, uh, the big issue of the moment. She could not get hormone therapy, although she tried all her life. Uh, anyway, apparently she was uh, frustrated both by her isolation uh, and uh, the difficulty she had. Uh, actually, she's kind of like Chir Shirley Chisholm. She says that gender was more of an impediment than race. Um <laughs> I had to go to Berkeley to get a degree. Anyway, let me just, just a, just a pinch. Let me just read you a pinch of what happened to this incredible woman. Uh, she, of course, fought Jim Crow. That was the issue of her time. Uh, uh, ha, ha. Let's see. She got, she got in touch with, well, she, she hung out with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, would you believe? And, uh, Let's see. Uh, she palled around with Langston Hughes, James Baldwin. Uh, they met at the McDowell Colony the first year it admitted African Americans. Uh, she maintained a 23-year friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. How about that? We know that Eleanor was uh, particularly fond of women. There's a lot of fuss made about that, but... Uh, uh, it was more than just just an attraction. Uh, anyway, this woman is at least a generation behind the civil rights movement of the uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, let's see. She also seems to have been uh, a working class hero. Uh, I think we're saying at the moment, the the uh, word is out, that third wave feminism is primarily, primarily centered around women of color. And I guess that's why this is the hero that has uh, come to the fore. Now, I haven't read anything about the process whereby she was sainted by the Episcopal Church. I want to look that up, but... The book that's coming out, the book that got this 
woman into the New Yorker is called Jane Crow, The Life of Pauli Murray. That's Jane instead of, uh, you know, Jane Doe is the, uh, the, the one for uh, the case dealing with abortion. Uh, Jane Crow is about uh, the Jim Crow laws. The Life of Pauli Murray, P-A-U-L-I is the way they spell the first name. It's from the Oxford Press, and it is written by an historian from Barnard, which is where actually uh, Pauli Murray was given uh, <laughs> entree. She certainly couldn't get into Harvard. Uh, I think it's fascinating the number of places where her uh, progress was blocked. Uh, she does seem to have wanted to be an academic, along with everything else. Uh, I don't know why she she bothered, but no, no, no. That was then. That was the path. That was the way. Uh, let's see. Here is her memoir. It's uh, called "Song in a Weary Throat." It was published posthumously. Oh dear, dear, dear. Uh, she once said that the most significant fact of my childhood was that I was an orphan. Her mother died when she was three, massive cerebral hemorrhage. Her father left alone with his grief and six children, children under the age of ten, six of them. He sent her to live with a maternal aunt, Pauline Fitzgerald, after whom she was named. Now, it seems that, uh, yes, her family, her aunt, there was a great deal of uh, nurturing and care, but... Uh, the father, sadly, three years later after his wife's death, he was ravaged by anxiety, poverty, and illness, committed to the Crownsville State Hospital for the Negro Insane. I will repeat that. He was committed to the Crownsville State Hospital for the Negro Insane. Now there, in 1922... A white guard taunted him with racist epithets, dragged him to the basement, and beat him to death with a baseball bat. Polly was then 12 years old. She traveled alone to Baltimore for the funeral. I will not read you any more of that passage because it's just too, too god-awful. Uh, anyway, this, this unfortunate orphan seems to have transcended everything, just about everything that hit her. Uh, let's see. Her maternal grandmother was born a slave. Let's see. Uh, part Cherokee, her grandmother. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a great deal of material about her background and heritage. Uh, all this stuff about... Well, yeah... Here's Frederick Douglass. You remember the president saying that he'd heard about that Frederick Douglass. You know, going to hear more about him. Uh, maybe I should send him this article from the New Yorker. That is, uh, DJ Trump tried to educate him. Mm, I don't think that's worth my time. Anyway, uh, this family, this large family, uh, had members ranging from Episcopalians to Quakers, and uh, they included persons who were dark-skinned and curly-haired, 
and uh, fair-skinned and blue-eyed and impoverished to wealthy. Uh, she wrote that it looked like a United Nations in miniature. Indeed, indeed. Uh, in her own words, she says she was a thin, wiry, ravenous child. Uh, she lived, she lived as, what is it, as fast and as, uh, what is that, quickly, cleverly as she could. She devoured both books and food. She didn't care whether it was, uh, you know, uh, the Bobsy Twins or Zane Grey or Dying Testimonies of the Saved and the Unsaved or Chambers Encyclopedia or the Collected Works of Paul Lawrence Dunbar Up From Slavery. Uh, she also loved macaroni and cheese, biscuits, molasses, pancakes, beefcake. Anyway, in school, uh, she had a little difficulty with her teachers, but she graduated at 15. She was editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, president of the Literary Society class, secretary, member of the debate club, top student, and a forward on the basketball team. <laughs> anyway, she didn't want to go to segregated schools, so she kept challenging, challenging uh, places where uh, she was constrained by segregation. Uh, now... It's near the end of this article that we bump into this incredible statement that this woman identified as a man in a time when there was very little, well, obviously, uh, the medical establishment knew something about these things, but it was not uh, popular information, let's see, uh, she graduated, that she did get through college, uh, but uh, at that point, she was hit by the Depression by the end of her sophomore year in college. <laughs> she had lost 15 pounds and was suffering from malnutrition. Uh, mm -hmm. Mostly, she lived with odd jobs. She graduated in 1933, the year I was born. Uh, it says here, possibly the worst year in United States history to enter the job market. Uh Harlem unemployment rate was 50%. Uh, anyway, uh, she had a stint at the Workers' Education Project, the WPA, and at the National Urban League. She was in and out of poverty. Uh, and at this point, she found her way into the labor movement. Uh, she joined a faction of the Communist Party USA. She resigned a year later because she found party discipline irksome. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, oh, dear, dear. North Carolina. North Carolina was home for her. Uh, I think, well, there's a whole bunch of responses to uh, the rejections of her applications. Uh, <laughs> the funny stuff. Oh, dear Miss Murphy, I write to state that members of your race are not admitted to the university, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, I think, yes, uh, the court cases that she struggled with, you know, were so interesting. She decided to let go of the... the the, uh, the word equal and go for separate. Yes, she said, can't prove, you know, that these are not equal, but we can prove uh, the separate situation. Yes, uh, 
Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, it seems to me that every time she makes a move or every time she takes a step, they find, they, the establishment, find some new way to undermine, uh, I think now, the ways in which women's reproductive rights and the right to vote are being eaten away at. Uh, anyway, she struggled when she was ad- struggling to be admitted to the University of North Carolina. Uh, all she did was get into two other notable American institutions, jail and law school. Mm. I think even the NAACP was unwilling or unable to represent her at that point. Good heavens. Uh, <laughs> yes. The... Uh, the next time she was in deep trouble, uh, they decided they would just, um, they would, they would just, um, accuse her of disorderly conduct. That's the way to go, just disorderly conduct. Uh, not, not the fact that she was being discriminated against. Anyway, she wrote to FDR and she said, well, she told him he cared more about fascism abroad than white supremacy at home. And somehow Eleanor got a hold of the letter, and she invited Polly Murphy, Murray, M-U-R-R-Y, Murray, to tea. That was the first of countless visits and the beginning of a productively contentious, mutually joyful, decades-long relationship. Why is it we haven't heard more about this woman? I think I had read in two anthologies I have read about uh, Polly, but I didn't know all these details. And obviously, I've got to get a hold of the forthcoming biography. Uh, anyway, they used this woman to do a lot of fundraising. That's a gag, anyway. Uh <laughs> Never mind. I, you can't blame the boys. They have to. They use what comes their way. Uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall wrote her recommendations, and by golly, uh, uh, she did enroll at Howard. She said with the single-minded intention of destroying Jim Crow. Uh, at Howard, race ceased to be the issue. Her gender abruptly became one. Everyone else was male, all the faculty, all her classmates. Uh, On the first day, one of her professors announced to his class that he didn't know why a woman would want to go to law school. A comment that, of course, humiliated Murray and guaranteed, as she recalled, that I would become the top student. (laughs) She termed this form of degradation Jane Crow, and she did spend much of the rest of her life working to end it. Anyway, on and on about how she tried, I always think of Samuel Beckett, yes, uh, try again, fail again, fail better. Here it is. Want to go to grad school at Harvard? The letter she received, yes, it would be You are not of the sex entitled to be admitted to Harvard Law School, a quote. (laughs) She wrote a rather cheerful rejoinder. Uh, It implies that it's as difficult to deal with them as it is (laughs) 
to change her sex. Okay. Okay. At this point, she went to Berkeley instead, and then she went back to New York and tried to find work. Uh, at that time, there was only around a 100 African-American women practicing law in the entire United States. Mm-hmm. We're getting up there, though. Remember, I said this woman died in 1985. Uh, very few firms were inclined to hire African-American women, and she scraped by on low-paying jobs until 1948. Yes, the Methodist Church approached her with a problem. Uh, okay. And actually, yes, once again, she became, she became, uh, a promoter of a fundraiser. Uh, mm-hmm. They said if they paid her for her time, would she write up an explanation of segregation laws in America? Okay. Here come the pamphlets. Uh, laws on race and color. Awful lot of uh, writing. Their good marshal kept stacks of uh, this literature around. Uh, anyway, completing that project left Murray Lowe on work again until 1956. She was hired by a New York law firm, and on and on and on. Now the thing is that at some point, at some point, this woman had to confront this this notion that uh, while she was a passionate advocate for women's rights, she identified as a man. Nothing she could do about it. She had one disastrous marriage to a man. Uh, 1930, she was 20, living in Harlem, met a young man. Mm, He was also 20, also impoverished, uprooted and lonely, brief courtship, married in secret. Awkward two-day honeymoon, cheap hotel. Immediately, Murray realized she made a dreadful mistake. Quote, a dreadful mistake. Emotionally, the marriage didn't outlast the weekend, and some years later, they had it annulled. Anyway, the entire adventure of this marriage occupies two paragraphs in Murray's autobiography, that is, the book that she wrote about herself, her memoir. Uh, It's the only paragraphs in 435 pages in which she addresses her love life at all. This is, this is more than closeted. Um, anyway, uh, now, Rosenberg, the one who's written the new book, uh, documents Murray's lifelong struggle with gender identity as well as her sexual attraction to women. Uh, So difficult. Rosenberg uses female pronouns to refer to her subject, she says, as as the author of this article. Uh, Anyway, the result is two strikingly different takes on one life, a scholarly and methodical biography that is built occasionally, too obviously, from 135 boxes of archival material, and a swift and gripping memoir that is inspiring to read and selectively but staggeringly insincere. What? Yes, I remember my first collection of poems, the 60s, the ones that I labeled as feminist. It was titled, We Wear the Mask. Anyway, 
Paulie identified most with Havelock Ellis's work on what he called pseudo-hermaphrodites, a term for people who saw themselves as members of the opposite gender from the one assigned to them at birth. Uh, as I said, she was terribly disappointed later in life not to be able to get hormone therapy. Uh, I think possibly this is this is one of those characters that is going to require a hell of a lot more study. Uh, this woman had breakdowns all of her life, many of them ending in hospitalizations. And the question, of course, is uh, uh, how did she do it? She says, this conflict rises up to knock me down at every apex I reach in my career. She said to the doctor, anything you can do to help me will be gratefully appreciated because my life is somewhat unbearable in its present phase. More next time. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next Tuesday at the same time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Hello, boys and girls. This is Chris Welch with a question and an answer for you. What if a famous feminist author whose activism was spurred by her own father's vicious macho bullying discovered that her father had become a woman? That's what happened to Susan Faludi, author of Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, among other things. Susan Faludi has written a gripping memoir about searching for her father, about sexual identity, about the Holocaust. It's entitled In the Dark Room. Here is the answer. Susan Faludi will present In the Dark Room at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley on Tuesday, May the 2nd at 7.30 p.m. I look forward to hosting this KPFA evening. Get tickets at brownpapertickets.com and our 